You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. If you have your Bibles with you today, please turn with me to Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be some in the pockets just in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, please consider that a gift from us so that you can read the Bible in your own time, because that's important. Um, Again, we'll be reading from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied to a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, What are you doing untying the colt? And they said to him what Jesus had said. And they said, And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others left leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father, David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Welcome in. <clears throat> very excited to be with you on the Lord's Day to worship the Lord together and to hear from the Word. So I'd like to start off just by praying for our time together, and then we'll hop into the book of Mark. So let's pray together. You can bow your heads with me. Father, thank you so much for your Word. Uh, We just pray this morning against the enemy. God, we pray against the schemes of the enemy that would cause us to be distracted or really just not, not to hear, even though we hear, to not really see what it is you'd have us to see. And so, God, we pray against him right now. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to, to know your word, to understand your word this morning, to worship you through your word and to be changed by it forever. Would you give us that grace and mercy by the power of your spirit? And uh, God, help us not only to, to, to hear the word truly this morning, but to be doers of the word and uh, to love you more. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we are uh, obviously been going through the book of Mark for this past year, and we're kind of hitting really the back third if you kind of want to break it up that way. And so uh, Mark 11 hits a a turning point for us, uh, and essentially we're going to spend the the back third of the book of Mark uh, looking at the last, really for the most part, the last week of Jesus' life before his death and resurrection. And so there's a lot going on here. Uh, obviously, you know, this is an important week. This is where things really kind of ramp up in the Gospels uh, of the things Jesus is teaching and going through. And so uh, it bids us to really focus here. And we're going to spend uh, several months on it, which is great, till about uh, roughly the end of November or so. And so we'll be looking at that 
um, portion of Jesus' life and learning a lot from it. So this text is kind of like the intro into that week and, and what's going to be going down there. And then also, uh, you know, we have the synoptic gospels. So this is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're called that way because they're pretty synced up, essentially. They have a lot of the same stories. Now, each of them has individually unique stories, but for the most part, they're telling roughly the same timeline and stories throughout. And then you got the book of John, which is kind of a wild card a little bit. Uh, John goes into a lot more detail in certain areas and tells some stories that don't exist in any of them. And it's just a little bit of a different gospel. But what we get here, this story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, this is in all four of them. And when you see that, it's kind of good also to perk your ears and, and kind of listen up. And so what I'm going to do today, Mark is actually probably the least detailed in this story. And so I took the liberty, I hope you'll forgive me, of borrowing from other accounts in, you know, uh, Matthew, Luke, and John as well, which I think will add a little bit of color, understanding of what's going on here. But we'll try to keep our main focus in the book of Mark and what we see. So to keep it simple, I kind of want to walk through three things we see in this scene right here. Uh, number one is I want to talk about the entrance of the king or the coming of the king. So Jesus coming into Jerusalem, how does he enter? What's going on here? I want to explain a little bit of that. Uh, number two is the praises for the king. Okay, so uh, what are the people saying? They start to kind of sing and shout these praises as Jesus walks in that we just read. What do those mean? What's going on here? Let's talk about the context. And then lastly, uh, which you actually don't see right here in this version of the story in Mark, but I want to talk about the resistance to the king and kind of what's beginning to unfold here. And we'll go through all that. So let's start first at the king's entrance. I want to read again. Now, I won't sound as beautiful as Luke, but I'm going to read it anyways. And we're going to read verses 1 through 6, all right? So let's look at that together. It says this. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. This is a pretty unique little story here, what's going on. So Jesus, as he's preparing to enter, and as he enters into Jerusalem, here's a few things we see. One is that Jesus comes with authority, Okay. So this was a common practice. If you were a king, you would be able to commandeer uh, any sort of resource that you needed. And this was common when you were kind of entering into a city. You would commandeer, I don't know, a chariot, maybe something cooler like a war horse or a cow. I don't know. But in this case, Jesus gets a donkey. We'll talk about that. But Jesus is showing his authority as the king that he can command a resource like that. He's also showing his authority by knowing exactly where the donkey is, exactly what needs to be said to get it, and then also knowing that he's going to get permission to get it, right? He shows his omniscience here. Jesus knows everything. He has not been in that town recently, but he knows exactly where that young colt is that no one has ridden on. He tells them where they'll find it, what to say when they find it, how to retrieve it, and then to bring it back, right? And so Jesus is showing, once again, his authority here. And I like this because Jesus is the sovereign king of the universe, right? And so when he's making his 
entrance into Jerusalem, he's going to show, I am the king. Not just a king of a certain people, but I, I am the king of kings, right? And so Jesus is, uh, if you will, flexing and showing his authority, which is important. Um, and he's going to show his authority in, in so many more ways. But essentially, you know, this is a unique moment where he says, okay, go get the coal. You're going to find it. You're going to say the Lord has need of it, and they're going to let you go, right? And then we, obviously this is before Texas existed, and so no one got shot by doing this with private property, but it worked out for them, right? Why? Because he's the king, it's his say, he has the authority, he's the ruler. Now it's possible that Jesus knew, knew this guy and there's lots of things we don't know, but nonetheless, he shows his authority, which is great. Jesus tells them exactly what to do, exactly what they'll find, and he was exactly right and he procures the donkey that he needs. Number two is that the king came humbly, Right? If you're the king of the universe, you would expect some pomp, right, when you come. You would expect some flash, some wow, right? That's what kings did. Some kings would come riding on elephants with multiple colors and a big strain of their army. Some kings would come uh, on a war horse, right? There's, There's so many options for a king to come on in a beautiful chariot. And Jesus chooses in fulfilling the prophecy about him to come on a little baby donkey, right? It's the cult of a donkey, okay? It's just a little baby one that no one's ever ridden on and that's what he's gonna come riding on, okay? That's not an intimidating way to be a king. But we know that Jesus is up to something different, right? We understand this in the story of the gospel that Jesus, as Philippians 2, witnesses about him, right? He comes humbly. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he took the form of a servant and humbled himself, Right? We know that he came to serve and not to be served, which is also different. Uh, and Jesus came uh, humbly. Remember, he was born in a manger in the middle of nowhere. Uh, he's from Nazareth, which the, the scriptures witness there's really nothing good that can come from Nazareth, right? It's a small town, uh, good for nothing. But Christ chooses this way over and over again to confound the wisdom of the world and the mighty rulers of the world and all the pride of the world. Jesus decides to come humbly, and this is a great witness about him. And actually, that's what Zechariah says about him too, which brings me to my third point, is that the king came prophetically, okay? There have been many, many prophecies um, and uh, things in the Old Testament scriptures that were witnessing about how Christ would come. And this one, as the book of Matthew says, uh, is came directly from Zechariah 9. Now, you got to remember, Matthew was writing to people that would have known the Jewish scriptures really well. Mark is not. Mark is most likely writing to a bunch of people like you and I that weren't Jewish, didn't have the scriptures, and so he explains things a little bit differently. But I want to read Zechariah um, chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, because this is kind of what's being fulfilled right here in the moment. So let's read that together. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. I love that text. There's so much going on here, but what we see is roughly 500 years or so before Christ ever came to the earth, we see the, the, the prophet Zechariah witnessing exactly about how Christ would come. And so when Christ says, hey, go to the other town, fetch this, 
Christ knows exactly what he's doing, right? He's fulfilling this prophecy that had been planned before the foundations of the world. Once again, showing his authority, his knowledge, his wisdom, his sovereignty. Christ says, I'm going to come in fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, John admits in his account in John chapter 12 that the disciples didn't really catch this till after the resurrection, right? Remember, Jesus promised that um, there was going to be a time that he would leave and he would send the Holy Spirit who was the helper and then all of these things would be known to them. And so we see that in John chapter 12 that he does that. It says in verse 16, his disciples uh, did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So it's like a light bulb moment for them. But what we see nonetheless is Jesus is coming and he's fulfilling the prophecy. And there's way more to this. And we'll get into this when we talk about what, what the crowd is saying about Christ. But they call him uh, the son of David, which it was known that the king, the Messiah, right, was going to come through the line and lineage of King David, right? He was going to be the rightful heir uh, to the throne to be the king of his people. Um, they're also crying out uh, Psalm 118 and other things going on here where he is fulfilling all the things that have been prophesied about uh, the Lord, right? He's coming right as the Passover starting. There's so many things uh, going on here. Uh, but my point is, is that he came prophetically. He came exactly the right time, exactly when he promised he would, all the way from the first promise in Genesis 3, right? The, the first gospel witness we see where God says, I promise you through the seed of the woman, I'm going to send the one who will crush the serpent's head, right? This is him fulfilling all of it and entering in. It's amazing. Number four, the king came purposefully. So not only was it prophetic, but it, it was purposeful. Now, if you remember, as we've been reading through the book of Mark, and if you've read through the Gospels, Jesus spends majority of his ministry really trying to not have people notice him, right? He says things like when uh, his um, mother, you know, the first miracle there in John chapter 2, right, where he turns the water into wine, and everyone said amen, right? And it's a good one. But his, his, his mom said, hey, do whatever he says. He's going to fix this. And Jesus looks at her and says, woman, my time has not come yet. You know, but he ends up obeying his mother, which is good. Um, but over and over again, you see this. Or like they try to make him king and he just turns invisible and sneaks through the crowd, right? And gets away. Or he'll heal someone from leprosy and he says, hey, don't tell a single soul, but go show yourself to the priest, right? And he does this over and over again. And he's asked why. And he says, well, my time hasn't come yet. But now what we see is that when Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, it's time, right? The time has come for him to be handed over, right? The thing he's been telling his apostles the whole time, to be handed over to men and to be crucified and to die for the sins of his people, right? And so Jesus, he's purposeful right here. He knows what he's doing. And we're going to see this a little bit later as we talk about the resistance, but this ticks the Pharisees off, Right? This uh, him coming in and what's about to unfold right here in Mark chapter 11 is going to set everything in stone. It's going to commit God's enemies to killing him at all costs and getting rid of him. Jesus has a purpose because remember, he didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, right? This is the fulfillment of the gospel prophecy and he's coming and he knows the cross is awaiting him. And he, eyes his, he has his eyes set there and he's ready, right? He's fixed his gaze, as the scriptures say, on what he's doing for the joy that's set before him. So things are changing now. Um, we also get, and we'll, we'll read this in John, but uh, basically this is right on the heels of him raising Lazarus from the dead as well. And so it says that all these people were amazed and started to gather because a lot of them witnessed him literally 
you know, bring someone back to life. And he did that in the open public. And once again, that was purposeful to create this moment, right? So Jesus has been planning this and it's happening, okay? Now this obviously disturbs the Pharisees and they start to really get upset. Just a few things here in uh, the book of Luke, chapter 1948, when this is all unfolding, they say, all the people were hanging on his words, okay? So the Pharisees are really frustrated. They say, everyone's going after Jesus. They're literally hanging on every word that he's saying. We've lost the battle. We've lost the people. And then in the version in John, uh, chapter 12, verse 19, it says this. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. I love that line, right? So the Pharisees are talking amongst each other. They're like, we're losing, okay? The grip that we had on the people is gone. Remember, the Pharisees, they, they were the, the holies of holies, right? Everyone looked at them as so holy. They had this sweet gig going on where uh, people paid them lots of money so they were very wealthy because, you know, you got, someone else got to make your dinner because you're doing holy things, right? They had all these people thinking they were amazing, respectable. Uh, the Pharisees were able to practice all their righteousness in front of everyone. And what was happening is Jesus was dismantling everything they held dear about worshiping themselves, right? Everything, this sweet little cozy niche they had with the people of God, which is why Jesus was always so freaking angry at them all the time because they were supposed to be shepherds of the people and they were really uh, serving themselves, right? Um, and so... This is all being unraveled right before them because the whole world's going after Jesus, right? He is creating a stir. And um, so they're frustrated. And this is very purposeful because Jesus has something to do. And there's one way that's going to happen. And that's them getting driven to the point of killing him. And so he's using, uh, you know, what the enemy is scheming in order to destroy the enemy. It's a beautiful thing of the gospel. It's great. Uh, He's doing exactly what, like we see the witness in Acts 4, that they're doing everything that God planned them to do in this moment that he might save us. So it's amazing. Number five, we don't see it in this text, but I did feel like it was worth mentioning. Um, Not only did he come in the ways we mentioned so far, but also the king came uh, sorrowfully or filled with sorrow, right? He came with compassion. What we see in Luke is as he's coming down from Bethany uh, over the Mount of Olives and is making the descent towards the city, It says that he can see the city. And here's what happens starting in verse 41 of Luke 19. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is a powerful text. This is what Luke records here happening. So Jesus sees Jerusalem and he can't help but weep over it. Why? Because what has always been said about them, hearing you will not hear, seeing you will not see. Jesus came for his own and his own did not recognize him as the scripture's witness, right? So Jesus is seeing what's unfolding before him and he is saddened. Now it looks like there were some people that obviously saw something, right? That's why they're worshiping him. But he knows that the vast majority are rejecting him and they have no idea what's coming, right? He's actually giving a witness towards what's about to happen in 70 AD, the fall of Jerusalem, where literally every stone of the temple in the city gets torn down by the Romans and his people are to never, ever be the same, at least in the sense of Israel, right? 
But Jesus has compassion, okay? He's, he, he, he's um, maybe in one sense rejoicing because of what's happening, and there was joy set before him, but in another real sense, he's sorrowful and compassionate as he sees the people. And this is important for us to recognize. And then number six, and then we'll move on. Uh, the king came victoriously, right? Uh, now, this isn't the victory that God's people probably thought was going to happen, right? Every, not every, but uh, many of the prophecies, at least to which they took them, they thought, okay, uh, Jesus is going to come, he's going to set things right, and he's going to take out the Romans, deliver us from oppression, and everything's going to be made right the way it ought to be. And yes, Jesus was definitely defeating the Romans and definitely making all things right, but not in the timing or the way in which they would have planned and or thought that it would happen, right? What Jesus is actually doing is far greater than they could ever imagine, which is to come humbly and to defeat sin, death, Satan, hell, the grave, all of it in one foul swoop, right? That's what he's doing here. He's doing an amazing work in victory, but the victory does not look like we would think of at least a worldly victory, right? But all this was taking place as he rode into Jerusalem. Every dot, iota, every little part of the plan was happening exactly the way God intended for the sake of you and I. And I just want to pause and say, I think we should be amazed, right? Like I'm skipping ahead of my notes. Um, that's okay though. Uh, these people that are worshiping with excitement and joy, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords parading down at Jerusalem, they saw very little of what you and I see being on this end of the resurrection, having a full Bible in your hands, right? They saw just enough of what was prophesied and what was coming to worship him greatly. How much more so you and I, right? We ought to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who has been victorious, who always will be, and he has given us promises, great promises for all of life. We ought to praise him. We ought to worship him. This is our call. The, te- the call of this text is to worship him just like the people did. I also want to say a caveat too. It's commonly referred to, if you've heard, you know, lots of teachings are on this. They'll say, hey, look, look how fickle, look how stupid crowds are, right? They, one moment they're worshiping him saying Hosanna. And the next moment they're saying, crucify him, crucify him. But I just want to say, I don't know if there's textual evidence that they're the same crowd. We don't really know, all right? I like to think this crowd's actually pretty genuine because it doesn't say it's the same crowd. It actually says that they secretly tried to crucify him. So maybe they didn't know. I don't know. You know, maybe there's some bleed over. Maybe it is the same crowd. But I just want to say, we don't know for sure, all right? So I think these people were genuine. Um, Okay, so there's some things on how he comes. Let's get into what the people are doing and saying because there's really important stuff here for us to get that's really great. So let's look at verse 7 and 8. So let's look at the praises for the king. So verse 7 and 8 says this. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the field. So first, before they start kind of singing his praises, there's something that happens. So after Jesus has them get the colt of the donkey, it's brought to him. The first thing that happens is they start to lay their garments on the colt. Now, for sure, it would have been the outer garments, not the inner ones. Okay, nothing sketchy's going on here. But what they're doing was a common practice is that if uh, there was a king, you would kind of throw your cloak. Just saying, look, what, what's mine is, is yours, right? What's mine is yours. You are my king. I am your servant. It was a sign of respect. We see this when Jehu was, uh, you know, basically made to be king at uh, Gamoth Gilead or whatever the place is called um, in Second, Second Kings 9 that the people do the same thing. They're praising him as king. They're throwing their cloaks down before him and all that stuff. And so this is what the people are doing. It's a sign of, hey, what's mine is yours. You're my king, 
my life for yours. I lay it down for you. This was a great honor and praise of their king, which is amazing. And so it's kind of like that red carpet, you know, kind of layout for him where they're throwing it down. It's a sign of respect. It's an amazing thing. And then they also take the palm branches, which was known to be a sign of joyous victory in the ancient world, particularly with the Israelites. And so when, you know, this is where we get Palm Sunday, right? And so we're actually, uh, I was joking earlier with someone, but we actually, starting from here, basically, we're like celebrating Easter the whole way through the rest of the year, pretty much. So it's pretty awesome. But this is what we talk about at Palm Sunday, right? Which is that they're throwing the palm branches down. This was like, hey, the king is here. Victory is close. We're, they're celebrating the victory and coming of King Jesus. And I love it. They're making merry. There's joyous shouting. There is celebration. This is a party and it's a worthy one. Then we see in verses 9 and 10, it says this. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And as we start to read other accounts, we see that in uh, Matthew, for example, he mentions that he's called the son of David. That's important. Uh, We see that in the book of John, he's explicitly called the king of Israel, which later will be on his cross as he's crucified. Uh, We see in Luke, Luke adds that they say peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so there's this massive celebration, a lot of things being said here. That's really, really great. Um, So let's break them down just a little bit. One, he's called the son of David, or it mentions that this is David's kingdom, being the father of David, right, being brought here, okay? So like we mentioned earlier, it was clearly prophesied uh, in 2 Samuel and in others that the Messiah was going to come through the lineage of David, okay? So you got Moses who prophesied about this coming prophet that's going to be greater than him, and you keep getting this echo and whisper, right? King David was a, a really good king, all things considered. Um, he's got, you know, blotches on his kingship for sure, but he was a man after God's own heart, did many mighty works, right? Um, and so once again in his, you get the echo, look, David is the rightful heir, not Saul. Through the line of David was going to come the Messiah. And so they're celebrating, look, it's him. And he actually came through the line and lineage of David. This is great, right? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the true king. It's being echoed here in what they're saying. Um, also keep in mind, they're shouting Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And they get that from somewhere, okay? Hosanna basically means like, oh, save or save us now, right? It's this cry like, Come, rescue us, okay? And they get this from Psalm 118. Let's read that together, starting in verse 25. It says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, I don't know Hebrew, but save us is transliterated Hosanna. That's what they're saying, okay? It's a direct quote from Psalm 118. They're they're worshiping God. This scripture is coming to their minds. probably recognize more than the disciples apparently and they're shouting this acclamation and celebration it would have been kind of one of the the psalms they would have visited during this time of the year and this celebration too so once again just massive fulfillment of prophecy Jesus coming an amazing moment they are worshiping the king what Jesus is saying and what the people are saying in this moment is you are the true heir of the kingdom of Israel you are the long-awaited Messiah that we have been waiting for for thousands of years You are the one that has been prophesied from generation to generation that would come and to save us. I mean, he just rescued someone from the dead, right? Lazarus had been decomposing for three days, and all of a sudden, Christ said, Lazarus, come out. 
right? Who is this that raises the dead? It's King Jesus. And that's actually in John, it says that, you know, all the people that witnessed that were coming there and they were rallying all the other people up and everyone was being stirred up and everyone's asking, who is this man who even has power over death? The answer is the King of Kings, the rightful heir. That's Jesus Christ, whom he is. I love that. And man, I hope we praise him like that, right? This is good. Joyous shouting. We should do a little bit more chanting and shouting in church, all right? Not getting crazy, just saying. Amen. All right. So we give us the praises for the king. And then lastly, I want to talk about the resistance. Now, if you've been paying attention, Mark 11, all it says is this in verse 11. It says, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. I will say one thing, just as a caveat. When you read Matthew and Luke's accounts, you would think that he basically rides in on the donkey, you know, parks right at the temple and then starts whip, making the whip and whipping the people out. But actually, it's even more methodical than that, all right? It seems like from Mark's account, Jesus goes in, looks around, says, yep, I got some business to handle tomorrow, okay? Then he goes out of town, comes back into town, and then, uh, you know, he, uh, he takes charge. That's all I'm going to say. I could have gone off there. All right, so, but what we get from the other accounts here, okay, is even though these crowds receive Jesus are super amped up, really excited. The Messiah is here. Not everyone feels that way. And that's important, okay? So here's what we get. We get kind of two things coming from this. But just rest assured that the enemies of God cannot stand the exaltation and praise of Jesus Christ. They cannot stand it. So here's what we see. One, in the account in John chapter 12, verses 9 and 11, look what they say. It says this. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. It was a miracle. They wanted to see him. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as a well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is amazing, right? So not only are the Jews or the, the Pharisees so frustrated at Christ, because he's causing people to worship him, but they even look at Lazarus and say, he's got to die too. Right, because he's helping them as a witness because he came back from the dead for people to worship him. So they even plot to kill Lazarus. Okay, the Pharisees are furious. Remember, we talked about all this life they build up to be praised by others. That's why Jesus is constantly ripping on them. You just do things before men to be praised by them. You have no true heart before God, right? Your whitewashed tombs, all these things. But the Pharisees, the enemies of God, are furious. They've been plotting to kill Jesus for a long time. They just kind of figure out how can we catch him? How can we, if we can't discredit him, how do we destroy him? And then now it's like, okay, we're not only going to destroy him, but anyone who would try to uplift him because all of the people are going after him, right? We see also in the account of Luke, it says in uh, 19, verse 39 and 40, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples, right? So as they're saying these things, he's saying, tell them to shut up. Tell them they can't say that. Tell them it's wrong because it was blasphemy according to them, right? And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, if that's not one of the most serious and amazing texts in your Bible, I don't know what is. He says, if my people don't praise me, the rocks will, the hills will, they'll cry out to God, I will be praised, right? This is the authority of the king. 
and I love this. I mean, and, and later on we read in one of the other accounts, and I'm kind of stealing from next week's sermon, so I do apologize to whoever's preaching it. But, you know, basically he goes in the temple, does his thing, and even the kids are worshiping him and saying, Hosanna on the highest. And they say, tell him to stop it. And he says, no, no, out of the mouth of babes, I prepared praise. And he gives the same thing. If they weren't to do it, then even the rocks would cry out, right? This is what's happening here. And so this is an amazing thing. And I, I, I want to take note, and, and really, I guess the reason why I brought this up and wanted to point it out is that the enemies of God hate the praise of God. This, this is true, right? We, we shouldn't be surprised that people hate God. We shouldn't be surprised that the world hates you, right? That's why Peter says when the fiery trial comes upon you, when people hate you, don't be surprised. It's normal. Why? Because they hate God. Jesus said that too. He promised, hey, they're going to hate you. Why? Because they hate me. It's not really about you. It's about the image of God, the glory of God. They hate it. And what we see here is foaming at the mouth Pharisees who cannot stand the praise of God's people. They absolutely hate it. So much so that they're willing to murder him and anyone else who gets in their way in order to stop them, right? Even the apostle Paul did this and was a witness to this. So I don't want us to be surprised, one, when people hate us. And two, I want to remind us that you have an enemy that hates you. You have to remember this as Christians. We have an enemy that absolutely hates you, hates your faith in Christ, hates your marriage, hates your life. And we're in a constant battle against this, right? It kind of brings me, I guess, my closing encouragements, and that's there are two kinds of people. And it's not just men and women, though that's true. We need to know that today. Um, it's not just Republican and Democrat. It's not just Chevy or Ford or any other silly comparison you want to put in there. I had more, but I stopped myself. There's only two kinds of people. It's those who praise the king and those who hate the king. It's those who are alive in Christ and those who are dead in sin. There's no third option. There's nothing neutral. And we see a glorious picture of this in the triumphal entry of Christ because Christ is on full display. His praise is on full display. And the people either praise him and are excited or they hate him and long to murder him. There's no other option. And we've been given this kind of weird Christian culture that we swim in today where we kind of feel like, ah, it's okay. It could be neutral. I'm not out there like killing Christians. I just think it's kind of weird. Or I think Jesus was a good man. Right, it's like the famous Lewis C.S. Lewis quote we always give that he was either Lord, a liar, or a, a, a lunatic. Right, there's no there's no option that he was just a good man. There's no neutrality. Jesus is either Lord or he's not, and it's important we remember this in the fight for our faith. Right, you are in a fight. You have an enemy that absolutely hates you. I mean, that's that's all I think about is destroying Christ and destroying those who follow him. And so, as you struggle against sin as you fight in the church and start cause divisions and bicker, as you see your marriage tanking, as you see your relationships hurting, as you see yourself not being able to resist sin, I want you to remember it's not just merely a fleshly thing, right? That's why Paul says we don't just battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and the cosmic powers of this present darkness, right? That's why he says, look, Christians put on the armor of God, that you may be able to resist all of the flaming darts of the enemy, right? Get the word of God, the spirit of God. Resist, resist, resist. That's not just a cute little Sunday school analogy, though it is. 
It's much more than that, right? It's a call for us to be armed, to be ready, okay? We have an enemy who hates us, and we must resist him. We must fight for our faith. We must realize the spiritual thing going on behind the physical thing because the physical thing's real, but so is the spiritual. And so, you know, it's, always, it's, like, the, it's like the old hymn, right? And you guys may laugh at this one, but if you grew up in a country church, you know what I'm talking about. Whose side is the Lord on, right? It's a good hymn. Whose side is the Lord on? And the, the last refrain is that we are on the Lord's side, O Savior, we are thine, right? That's the, that's the refrain of that first verse. It's a good one. Look it up later. It's written in the 1870s. Excellent hymn. Um, our king is worthy of praise, and he will be praised. And we ought to rejoice greatly that we get to partake in that, right? If we don't rejoice, the rocks will. But man, I don't want the rocks to get my glory of praising the Lord, right? I want that glory. I want that joy of shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord my God. I want that joy. And Christ bids us in the text to partake in that joy together. It will happen, right? Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue will confess. Everyone will worship God is what the scriptures say one day. But I'd like to be on the Lord's side. I'd like to worship the Lord, okay? Uh, it's important. And like I mentioned, we have much reason to rejoice in the Lord our God, don't we? The promise of eternal life, the joy of salvation, the help in times of trial, the comfort in times of sorrow, the prayers when we don't know how to pray them, and the list goes on and on and on and on. We have reason to shout, reason to rejoice. And then lastly, I just want to remind us that the king is compassionate. I mean, I love the scene where he comes down and sees the city and can't do anything but weep for the people whose hearts are hard. And our Lord weeps for us and encourages us and helps us in times of need. Our king's mercy is great. It's glorious. It's amazing for us. And so as we see this picture, this glorious picture of Jesus riding in on the donkey, just as he said he would do from before the foundations of the world, humbly with the joy set before him, to gain his bride, to bring his sheep into the fold and to rescue his people and to glorify his name above all other names as the King of kings and Lord of lords. That Jesus, as we look to that Jesus, I pray this morning that we praise him, that we rejoice greatly, that the cry of our hearts is Hosanna in the highest. And my encouragement to you as a child of God is even if you don't feel like saying it and shouting it, you should do it anyways. Shout it. Anyways, because the Lord is on your side. Hosanna in the highest. So as we prepare our hearts right now to take of the Lord's Supper, I just want to pray together. So I want to ask God to help us. We're about to sing and shout uh, and praise him. And as we renew our covenant with him through the act of the Lord's Supper, I pray God encourages us deeply. So let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word once again as we prayed in the beginning. And we thank you that... Even though the enemy schemes and has flaming darts set out for us, God, that you use his schemes just like you did in this moment in Mark 11. You use his schemes to turn it back on his head and to rescue your people and to make your name great. And God, I thank you for that. I pray right now for everyone under the sound of my voice, God, that you would help us to worship you in spirit and truth. 
God, let the cry of our hearts be, save us, Lord. Do it now. Save us right now. Hosanna in the highest glory and peace to the name of Jesus, the Son of David. God, thank you for fulfilling all prophecy and all scripture and all the law so that we might live in you despite our sin. And God, I pray for those who right now are just under the wiles of the devil, the flaming darts of the enemy. Would you help them to put on the armor that you provide? Would you help them, Lord, to see clearly, not dimly, to see clearly on what's really going on and to fight, to resist through praising and trusting in your name. O King of Kings, may the rocks never have to cry out because we, your people, do with faithfulness and in truth but we thank you that it doesn't depend on us. And even if we didn't, that you would still be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords over all the earth. You would still be worthy of all praise of the universe. You would still be the glorious one. Help our hearts to see you. Help our minds to get out of the fog and to look to you, Lord Jesus, and praise you and see you and worship you and defeat the enemy each and every day as we look to the day that you come again and your entry next time is going to be glorious, not on a donkey, but on a war horse with a flaming sword coming out of your mouth to destroy your enemies and to rescue your bride. And we look forward to that day, Lord Jesus. Help us, we pray. It's in your name. Amen.